Hello everyone and welcome back to another great episode. This episode again was long overdue. We recorded this one probably back in January, March, I think, with Kim and uh, it's pre it's during pandemic, it's pre-COVID, so sorry if we don't talk a lot about COVID, but I think everybody got enough about COVID talk, and um, we we refocus a little bit in this episode on the ransomware, on uh, how Kim raised uh, from a desktop support analyst, uh, what kind of other job she did, and how she explored the world of cyber, and how she grew into what she's doing today as a, as a blogger, as a uh, effectively uh, somebody that is really involved in the industry, and and they recently published a book with Philly Wilde that was on the podcast before that is called The Pentested Blueprint. So please go and check it out. It's on Amazon, it's on Wiley. So it's a really good book and it's really good for introduction on pen testing. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's a little bit longer than expected, but it's a lot and amazing, great contact. And it's such a pleasure to talk with him. So I hope everybody's staying safe and staying cozy. And I wish everybody a great Christmas, pre-Christmas, I know it's early, but enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have on the blogger, penetration tester, or researcher segment, Kim Crowley, on the show. And Kim is a blogger, an independent researcher. She's been featured in AT&T, Peerless, Allen Bolt, you name it. Uh, I think 10K or medium followers. Yeah, Kim, tell tell us a little bit about yourself and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Um, thanks for inviting me, Mr. Cipollone. Am I pronouncing your name Frank. correctly? I'll, I'll just call you Frank. <laughs> call me Frank. Everybody call me Frank in the industry. <laughs> okay. I have been interested in IT and cybersecurity and hacker culture for a long time, probably more than half of my life. And... I just kind of fell into doing what I do. Uh, I used to, about 10, 15 years ago, be a desktop support technician, which is a job that I got with my CompTIA certs. <laughs> and that was really hard, demanding work. And I would close maybe on average 30 tickets a day. And most of those were caused by Windows malware. So I was... <laughs> remoting into customers' machines, or when remoting wasn't possible, sometimes because of the malware, having to instruct them over the phone and get them into booting in a safe mode and whatnot. And that really started my fascination with cybersecurity, having to fix all of those malware problems. About a decade later, and I've my job has been 100% researching and writing about cybersecurity, about 
all facets of cybersecurity. So I have to be like a, a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> Although, I think quite frankly, I am looking at some threat intel roles right now. Oh, that's great. And and I saw your article. The article are quite widespread. So you talk, uh, one of my passion is talking with women in cyber and empowering women in cyber and giving them the shows. And I saw your series of articles on women in cyber and it's amazing to give them voice. But before we dive in in that thing, uh, in that industry specific thing and your article, your contribution, uh, we have a tradition in the show that is having a look on the state of the industry. And I think you are the perfect person to to have <laughs> uh, since you, you research on this wide breadth of uh, topics. What's your view, Kim? I think what you're referring to is in, I think, October 2016, uh, Joe Petit at Tripwire saw that I was doing a series of interviews of women in cybersecurity. And he said, Kim, I would love to have those interviews on Tripwire's data security blog. And that man gave me my big break. Overall, I interviewed a little over 50 women and non-binary gender people and uh, that series went on for like a little over two years it's amazing because i spoke with so many women and non-binary people uh, I, I was able to make a lot of friends in the industry very quickly and it got my name out there too and now i write about everything <laughs> i write about everything but i mean i'm very proud of that series and i interviewed some really amazing people and i learned a lot from them and many of those people that I've interviewed are still my friends today. So who left you a mark? Who left you really a wow factor? Or who shocked you with a story? Tell me, tell me a little bit about those interviews and what one that you can remember that shocked you from in a positive or negative side? Uh, one of my friends, Cheryl Biswas, had one of the most unusual paths to becoming a threat intel researcher that I've ever heard of. I don't think, I wasn't shocked, it wasn't negative, it was very positive. Mm -hmm. she, was, uh, she was doing something completely unrelated in PR and Stuxnet happened. And Stuxnet fascinated her and she's a natural researcher. So she didn't really have any computer science credentials beforehand. She had a degree in political science, but that made her catch the bug. And she started, you know, after Stuxnet, she started researching all kinds of really bizarre cyber threats. Cause like when Stuxnet happened, that was the most unusual malware anyone had ever seen. Yeah, it was the first state, state sponsored and a really crafty one that then generated the whole stream of new malware effectively was the first one that generated effectively bot botnet-malware work but in a cyber in a cyber warfare way i think that was the first really worldwide visible cyber warfare I think what fascinates me the most about Stuxnet is the obfuscated code. Yes. The fact that the programming code could not easily be reverse engineered. Yeah. And also the and, and that generated also the, the new stream of, of um, 
cryptovirus, the, the one that generate and modify and move so that, uh, as you said, they can't be reverse engineered very, very easily and they change all the time, the polymorphic one. Yeah, those are, those are fascinating. Not maybe for the researcher because <laughs> it's difficult to also detect from one machine to machine because the code change uh, all, all the time. So you need to, you need to have behavioral analytic anti-malware rather than the traditional, you know, this is the hash. Every file that contains that bits or that string or that segment is going to be malware infected. There is no way that anyone but a, a, a nation state group could have developed it. Yeah, and that's, that's the interesting bit where we start seeing nation states really investing. Or, for example, North Korea trying uh, uh, to attack a target, especially in the financial service. They target specifically the financial service to extract information and to generate money for the cyber warfare. So that created the stream of the modern Syrian army. Uh, they run uh, attack groups that I sometimes talk about, but it's, it's really interesting how much engineering effort is put in there. And it's impossible for any other group to put in there so much money because it's, it's, it's a company. They treat that as a product, as a company. And yeah, it's... Amazing. So how did you get into that rabbit hole? <laughs> when Stuxnet happened, I was just working in general desktop support IT. It wasn't until like mid-2010 that I started writing about cybersecurity seriously. Because Stuxnet was 2009, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, was long time yeah. ago now. 10 years. That was, that was my desktop. Yeah, around mid-2010 is when I transitioned from desktop support to writing about cybersecurity. So what, what was the first cybersecurity thing that you stumbled across? Well, tell me a funny story about that or an interesting story. Um, I, I saw early Windows ransomware mm -hmm. because I was like, I, we were purely supporting at the time Windows XP, Windows Vista, Windows 7. And uh, Bitcoin didn't exist until I think 2009. Yeah, I think, I think late 2009. So the early Windows ransomware before that asked for credit card numbers. Mm -hmm. We would, each of us desktop support agents would be in our little cubicles. So we could all hear what everyone else was saying on their calls. And constantly throughout my shifts, there'd be at least one or two of my colleagues or myself saying to a customer, no, no, don't give them your credit card number, don't. So what do you think about, actually, that's an interesting point. What do you think about the ransomware, paying a ransomware as a business or as, a, as, a, as an individual? Uh, it's a risk assessment, right? So what do you think about paying the ransom? There is a whole conflict. I wrote an article for Silence's Threat Vector blog, I think, back in early 2018, about an American hospital that got hit by ransomware, and they had backups. They backed up all of their data that could possibly be backed up. But recovering from those backups would have taken so long, and it would have interrupted the operations of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So they paid the ransom. Yeah, that's a good risk assessment. That's a good risk assessment. There is a whole debate in the industry that says, well, don't pay the ransom because... Yeah, so it, it, it varies from situation to situation. You know, sometimes 
sometimes you pay the ransom and the cyber attacker is like, ah, got your money, F you, right? So paying the ransom isn't a guarantee that you can get your files decrypted. And uh, antivirus companies develop decryptors for certain strains of ransomware. So you can always try something like that too. If you can possibly avoid paying the ransom, don't pay it. So, I mean, there are antivirus companies that have developed decryptors for some strains of ransomware. You can, most of the time, restore from your backups if you were sensible enough to create backups. But there are certain situations like that hospital I wrote about on Silence's blog that they'd have to not take care of patients for a while if they took all the time to recover from their backups. So So a risk assessment. Yeah. And it seems to me these days that most ransomware targets institutions. Ten years ago, it was mainly like the, the end user consumer. Now the main target is hospitals and banks and schools and stuff like that. Do you think end users have become more wise or just less lucrative? I think they're less lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, we had the, the, the cryptoware, the crypto ransomware, or effectively the crypto mining software that is, is targeting the users, or the, actually, see a new strain attacking completely cloud environments. That, that's what I saw reporting on malware in the past few years the rise of malicious crypto miners that are so sophisticated because they'll work on a botnet of like maybe hundreds of thousands of machines and use so little computing power on each individual machine so that they can evade detection. And then some of them are even fileless malware. So there's not a trace that could be found in a hard drive scan. Um, So I saw that and I also saw the rise of modular malware. From modular, meaning that it's not one piece of malware, it comes in different modules. One module could be ransomware, and the next could be a crypto miner, the next could be spyware. So good malware architecture. <laughs> the race of malware architecture. That should, that should be a, a fantastic article, the race of malware architecture. <laughs> so modular malware used to be mainly an Android thing. A couple of years ago, and now you see modular malware on all platforms. That's interesting. No, I need, I need definitely to look into that because that's a new stream, and it's logical. I mean, if, if with the software development, uh, we becoming better and better, they're just applying the same the same logic to malware because it's just software. So a good and from the cyber attacker's perspective, it's just okay. We've got our foot into this computer. Now let's see all the different ways that we can make money off. Yeah, we could we could generate Bitcoin. We could demand a ransom for their files. We could take their banking credentials and mess with their finances, or sell that data on the dark web, and so on and so forth. And it's it's, it's milking the cow, so it's persistent threat as much as possible. That's that's why, for example, we recommend our clients, especially in the cloud environment, but that's particularly uh, pervasive just regenerate image. You can't do that on, on the end user computing yet, but um, 
on cloud environment, that's probably the best and easy way to avoid uh, APT, advanced persistent threat. Cloud security is is fascinating from a legal perspective, though. Is it? Well, what is that? I've written about cloud security like a number of times before for like Tripwire's blog and Venify's blog. And people lose sight of the fact that the infrastructure is Amazon or Google or Oracle, et cetera's responsibility. The software that you deploy on their cloud is your responsibility. And they offer all of these security controls. And so many times developers don't use them. No, but because... <laughs> Because what, what I see from that perspective is uh, people move to the cloud, not cloud native. People move to the cloud with the perception that it's cheaper. And that most of the time it's not, especially if you move uh, like to like, because you don't use the power of, of the cloud. Uh, but also it's an easy migration. And once you start getting better at it, or if you're a completely new startup, so a completely greenfield startup, then you use cloud native everywhere because it's easier. But it's also more expensive. But it's somebody else's responsibility. So it's so easy to enable, I don't know, anti-DDoS. That's probably a no-brainer on AWS because, you know, it's just an activation and that's it. It's done. Well, if you had to deploy it uh, on-prem, it's so much more complicated. So, And even, even big corporations are doing that. Um, I subscribed to Disney Plus when it started in Canada in November. Mm-hmm. And the day I was there on Disney Plus day one, and the service was so slow, and I just wanted to watch my Disney cartoons. <laughs> I, I subscribed. I subscribed. Uh, I subscribed as well. <laughs> this this podcast doesn't endorse Disney Plus, but The Mandalorian <laughs> is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I'll tell my boyfriend that he's a big Star Wars fan. And he likes that show too. Yeah, I know. Anyway, day two. They sent an email to all day one subscribers saying, sorry for the shitty service on day one. You'll find that you'll stream just fine now. And you and I know that what Disney did was they just went to Amazon or Google or whoever their cloud providers is and said, triple our capacity. Yeah. Right. It's like scalability is the main benefit of cloud cloud. And green. But I was discussing with Microsoft and their reach capacity in Europe, for example, right now. So they they went, uh, because with coronavirus, with all these things, massively accelerated digital transformation, they reach capacity. I mean, they're still data center. They're, they're massive capacity. They're very good at uh, perceiving the ramp up and ramp down. But when people ask all at the same time capacity, they're rich capacity. So... But as you say, Kim, is is uh, the agility, the flexibility, and the scalability that is at the fingertips. So even programmable scalability. So you can ramp up and down as you want. But also there is a new stream of challenges because it's so new. So protecting element or getting attacker to use your environment, hit, hiding stuff like in AWS, hiding things in different zones or hiding services that maybe do crypto mining and you may be not monitoring your bill, and then your usage spikes up. So it's really difficult right now to... You have a lot of tools, but with a lot of 
uh, tools becomes a lot of responsibility. Sorry, I twisted that reference a little bit. <laughs> With great tools comes great responsibility. Fantastic. See, you say <laughs> that's why you guess and I'm the host. <laughs> you say better. <laughs> no, that that's amazing. But how did you start, for example, on the on the blogging side of things? What what was your aside from Tripwire? What was your big, uh, uh, you know, showcase blog? Or how did you decide to get into blogging? So I know I know your father was was a writer, right? Yeah, um, my father was a novelist, and that was his only job was writing. Um, so I grew up with that as a little girl. Like my dad was always home. And I learned from a very early age, don't bother daddy while he's working. And then in the early 90s, like roughly around 1992-ish, 1993, we had to buy our very first 486 Windows 3.1 OEM because my dad couldn't find daisy wheels for his Smith Corona electronic typewriter. So finally, he was like, F it, I have to stop using electronic typewriters now. And whenever Dad's 486 Windows 3.1 OEM would have any sort of technical problem, I would try my best to fix it. Like there were like printer port problems or way too many applications would boot up once when he'd boot up Windows and I would open AutoExec that and remove lines from it because you could do that back then yes when 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 operating system was more and programmable <laughs> yeah hey francesco here a very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of nsc42 limited your cybersecurity partner cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. Now that I think that my very first ventures on the internet were on a Windows 3.1 computer, where like the file system I think is FAT16, and there's like no file level security and it's a single user environment, it scares the hell out of me to think about that. But it was also, at that point in time, it was also harder to get into things. I mean, if you, if you think how did we used to connect in that days, uh, word dialing was still a thing or connecting to, well, maybe a, a little bit before that, uh, connecting into blogs and posts, you had to know the number. So it was so difficult to access certain service and certain things. Right now, everything is accessible. So we removed that complexity and even, and, and there is a lot of information available. So I was having a debate with Ray about uh, Ray Redacted. I'm going to keep on calling it Ray Redacted. <laughs> about the accessibility of hacking. So the Hacker Manifesto is information should be available to everybody. And I subscribe to that. But also, kids can learn how to hack stuff and not knowing the consequences of things. So 
You go on YouTube, you say, I want to hack the Wi-Fi, or I have this model of Wi-Fi that I want to hack. And you don't have the perception that that's wrong, even though that's how everybody starts. <laughs> Let's try and poke things and see if something breaks, right? I've heard older nerds say that the old stereotype of the kids are more computer literate than older generations is starting to break down now. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 36. 35. <laughs> there we go. Despite having teenage tastes. I think it's the industry. We never change. <laughs> we are all little kids. But but we remember we remember floppy disks. We remember installing things at the DOS mm -hmm. prompt. We remember all that stuff. And the Zoomers don't remember any of that. If we... I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest. For all the streaming services that I pay for now, I pay for ten different streaming services right now. Um, if I can't find a piece of media on any of those streaming services, not on Disney Plus, not on Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, I will BitTorrent it. I will engage in piracy if a, if a movie or show I want to watch isn't on any of my services. And we know how to do that. And your average Gen Zer apparently doesn't know how to do it. And they don't remember LimeWire. Yeah. And they don't remember Kazaa. And they don't remember how easily, yeah. Yeah, the stream service. The first, the, the first paid to be stream service. <laughs> when everything wasn't HTTP, it was parallel network. And that's how Tor and, and Tor was born, in fact. It was a parallel network and dark web or... The common conception of dark web is just a parallel network. It's nothing, nothing more fancy than that. And people just mystify this dark web as as one mystical place, but it's just a network that is not indexed and not accessible. And maybe we we overly simplify technology, even with cloud environments. Um, I'm, I'm discussing I'm discussing with a few people. Maybe we oversimplify things. And AWS just recently published a zero code uh, application. And anybody could code. And that's fantastic because they don't need to have the coding knowledge. But also that causes a lot of issues because you have, I don't know, anybody that comes with an idea, put a couple of lines of code, present it to the board, the board say, yeah, that's great. It goes to production <laughs> without any security scrutiny or any coding scrutiny whatsoever. And we have a lot of this um, vulnerability and technical debt that organizations keep on building up because we want to go faster and faster and faster. So did we make technology too easy, in your opinion? Uh, it depends on for who, right? Mm. I would like younger generations to be familiar with the command line. But I mean, honestly, one of the biggest problems in security, as we both know, is end user frustration or end users being overwhelmed. Yeah. Right? I mean, we... Raise your hand if every time you see an EULA, you just clip to it. Yes, of course. Yeah. Or cookies. Or cookies is the new is the new bombarding thing that says we want to do what's right, but we're gonna put a wall of cookies so you ended up just accepting, yeah, or time of reference. They are so obscure. And we discuss lengthy with Tanya, Tanya Janka, uh, about She's great. She's great. She's that, that's the reason why this podcast started. We we launched the hashtag Mentoring Monday together, and was a it was a way to actually reach the the big mentee. And that's that's one of my mission to 
reach as many people as possible with the knowledge. And that's why we do this, uh, this podcast. This industry is a really small world. It is. We all know each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we all go to conference with each other. So actually, I haven't, I, I missed you at, at, at conferences. Uh, so when the world is going to rebound, we might see each other on stage. <laughs> if, if you come to Canada or like Toronto specifically, I will gladly meet you offline. I was actually there quite, quite a few times. <laughs> so now I know. I was this in Tanya, but before she moved. <laughs> But no, back on back on making maybe technology to accessible. I see, I see the good part of it because everybody could spin up their environment, their park. Uh, they could try and fiddle with things. And with my good friend Daniel, he he does a lot of uh, a lot of thing in in the cloud for kids and for um, other other technical people because you can't have your environment before you need to have your your stack of of rack. <laughs> in your home and trying to break into things. And that was cool. But right now, that thing is completely removed. That uh, complexity is completely removed. So there is, I think, the good and the bad on on removing the complexity. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, UX design is a complicated ever after. I don't work in UX design, but I've spoken to UX designers. One of the early things I wrote for Science's blog was a paradigm that, well, not a paradigm, a model that we have in cybersecurity is you got to find a compromise between security and usability. Yes. And this article kind of uh, questioned that, whereas uh, most of the time that model fits. But we're talking about cyber attacks that were made possible because GUIs were counterintuitive to users. I think a lot of that article was about how Microsoft used to warn about Microsoft Office backwards. And the interface wasn't intuitive to the user what was going on. No, and I agree with you. UX is a massively complicated design and is a completely different science. but also the benefit of that, I think from a cybersecurity perspective, it teaches a lesson. If you make cybersecurity part of effectively embedded inside the design, embedded in the application, almost frictionless, you get massive adoption. And a good example of that was, for example, facial recognition with the Apple phone and um, or on the previous series, uh, the mandatory multi-factor with the thumbprint. They made it so easy, but they... They removed the choice, if you want, and they made it easy, but a mandatory step. So people wouldn't get frustrated. It was a little bit more complicated, but not frictionful. And I think with multi-factor, that's the mission. I like like the defaults on my Samsung phone that I bought last year. The default is it will unlock the screen with your face. Failing that, you enter your four-digit PIN. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Apple does it because I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> I'm, I'm an Apple boy. So uh, I, I like the UX. I like the <laughs> UX. Uh, and from a cyber perspective, I think they do uh, a lot more review on the app, on the App Store, even though it's not immediately, uh, you can't trust the Apple Store, even though that there is that misconception that every app in the Apple Store is safe. 
And there is that misconception that every app or the majority of apps uh, in the Google store are safe, while there is a good percentage of apps that are much more open. So I've seen a lot of malware being delivered to to Androids uh, versus Apple's phone because of... Yeah, there's a fierce debate in our industry as to whether Android is better than iOS or iOS is better than Android. And I think there are pros and cons with both platforms. Android is much easier to F up. I mean, Android is a lot more mm -hmm. open. Um, a lot of the time I have my Android phone configured to allow outside applications. By default, it won't allow applications outside of the Google Play Store, but you can change that default in the settings without booting your phone. So there's a bit like the Android world is a lot more heterogeneous, I guess, because the software on one phone could be completely different from the software on another phone and so on and so forth, right? So like the Android world, the software and the configurations and the drivers could be completely different from one phone to the next. Which And sometimes, you know, security patches are released per OEM, per telecommunications provider. So it's not always easy to get security patches out to all devices. Correct. So that's a huge problem. Um, but then when there's a security problem in the iOS world, it affects so many more phones. Yeah, but also it's more iOS is more draconian, say it's update or this is the version. And there is that um, frictionless of updating devices that I like. So there was a whole debate, I think in three or four Black Hat ago on, on the closing keynote that we like the screening process that Apple does. Not We don't like Apple. We don't like Apple Store, but we like the idea of screening the apps because inherently, you cannot trust the brand. So if, if you know that that store is safe, we put a little bit more friction around the store, a little bit more restriction, but then inherently we know that by, by and large, the majority of apps are going to be safe or are going to be delivered in a safe way. Again, usability. And you have to jailbreak. Correct. You have to jail. You have to jailbreak an iPhone to install apps from outside of the App Store. Yeah, and and sometimes that yeah. breaks a lot of the concept of is it, again usability or flexibility. I, I want to use everything in a device versus this is the three methods and we secure these three methods of delivery. So I, I like that approach. It removes a little bit of flexibility, but it's a trade-off as everything in cyber, I think. So you, you're big in, in women's in cyber. You've interviewed all these women. If you want to give, if you want an advice of somebody that is starting in this industry, right now is a fantastic time because I think we have a lot of focus on women, on the, not just on women, on non-binary, diversity, on anybody that want to start in this industry that is a non-white guy. <laughs> I think you're right about uh, cybersecurity being more welcome to women and non-binary people than it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think in a general sense, like all people, this, this industry is going to get really tough. Like a lot of our colleagues are already losing their jobs I'm very lucky that I've been able to keep working through the pandemic, but a lot of companies are very foolishly 
looking at their cybersecurity team and thinking, well, this is an additional expense that we don't need. Yeah. And uh, so, so all we care about is our next quarterly profits and shit like that. And it'll blow up in their faces. So on, on one hand, the industry as a whole is tough right now because of the recession, which is probably going to be a, called, called a depression very soon. But on the other hand, relatively speaking, yeah, so, I mean, you and I are very lucky to be able to keep working, but a lot of people aren't so lucky. I mean, mm -hmm. I, quite, frank, quite frankly, I don't like capitalism very much, but I think, I think yeah, if you want to get into this industry, don't let any of that discourage you. Fantastic. Do have a backup, though. Not, 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 not to give up on your dream of entering the industry, but as a source of income while you get your first job in this industry. But that's valid for everything, and uh, and and I have a big battle against, uh, you know, too high certification, too high things. We 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 have a massive gap in this industry. I think down before the pandemic, there were three or four million job opening. Um, on no, I think we're two around two million job opening just in the US. So there is a massive gap of people, and we can use people from all across industry. So you don't necessarily need to be a hacker. There is a whole load of you know privacy and regulation and compliance that doesn't require you to hack things. So I think we need to remove a little bit the misconception that. You need to be a hacker to be in this infosec community, and I and I generalize. So you can be a blogger, you can be a writer, you can be a social engineer. That doesn't necessarily need to be technical. So there is a lot of choices. You could be blue team. You could be blue, red, purple, yellow. <laughs> <laughs> blue teamers are like people are so obsessed with the red team because it's so sexy and they get to attack things. And no one pays any attention to us and we take those vulnerability reports and we got a security hard and everything. Yeah. I mean fixing things <laughs> is not sexy, but it's very rewarding. And you need to know how to attack to defend. So I, I like people that transition between red and blue because then they know how to attack, but they also understand how to avoid traces. So I was discussing this with Philip Wall uh, on on the red versus blue and how to shift that mindset because if you learn how people defend you learn better on how to hide your traces when you go back in red so i like the transition between red and blue team i know it's not i'm glad that i'm glad that you mentioned philip wiley because we're working on a book together right now Amazing. about pen testing <laughs> and we all know each other <laughs> no <laughs> that's why i I almost don't bother anymore to mention surnames or hashtag because <laughs> we're all there. The book is called The Pentester's Blueprint. Mm -hmm. And we're almost finished writing that book now. And we mentioned that I, I describe some blue team facets like incident response and stuff like that. And I say, even though as a pen tester, you're not going to be doing this. You need to understand how the blue team will be using your information. Yeah, no, I, I like I like that perspective, and and I think having that non-biased uh, view of 
of of the world of pen testing is massively and absolutely key. So I'm really glad you're writing a book. I hope I'm gonna have a signed copy. <laughs> sure. And I know I know he's um uh, he got recently accepted in in a talk on uh, Boston B side. So hopefully we're gonna hear more of that. Yeah. I have a web page out for Boston B-Sides and actually I'm going to go and buy a ticket today. Fantastic. Because it's an online event. I don't have to physically go to Boston. And that, that's actually a good part of this whole pandemic that if you want, we open up all this con uh, to people that normally couldn't go to con because maybe didn't have a budget, didn't have time, availability, family commitment. And now there is so much material available all of a sudden. But also on the other side, there is too much. <laughs> so where, where you had the physical boundaries before, right now you don't, but you have so much available. And we really were discussing, we were chatting that, you know, I, I'm no use anymore to, to listen to podcasts. I go running just to listen to podcasts. <laughs> what do you think? Um, by the time that this is online, this info sec may have happened already, because um, it's going to be on July 11th. But... I started that event because I was inspired by Leslie Carhart's Pancakes Con, and um, I was I was a part of the Beer Farmers Beer Con one, <laughs> and something in me was like, why don't I try to do something like this myself? But how there's no benefit to me doing something like that myself if I don't differentiate somehow. I agree. So I decided I'm disabled. I'm disabled because I'm autistic and I have ADHD. Why don't we do a con where all of the speakers are disabled? They don't have to be autistic or have ADHD, but any sort of disability is fine. And so that's going to be on July 11th, or that probably has already been done at this point if you're listening to this right now. And yeah, there are so many online events right now, and I'm not trying to compete with any of them. I'm just trying to offer something different, but it's it it's good and it's bad, right? Because as you're saying, like people could be overwhelmed by all the options, but it's good because it lets a lot of voices with important things to say have a chance to speak and be listened by people. Yeah, and we open up also that that uh, our event that usually was physically in London, so we do an event with the Cloud Security Alliance uh, about cloud security, and now we're going to open up so I can. I can drag people and friends from all over the world and say, you don't have an excuse anymore. <laughs> I'll drag you online. Tanya's going to be there. Magda's going to be there. Um, and we were, I was trying to, to get them on the, on the event, uh, so many years ago and for so many years, but always problem with travel and sponsoring right now that friction is removed. Yeah. But hopefully everything will be recorded. So. Other people, new generation or people that couldn't attend an event now can go and listen to it. So um, I, I usually binge watched uh, Upset Kali events and I spoke at, at the last one. So it was a massive pleasure to, to, to see. And, and the quality of recording is amazing. And also it removed right now all this pandemic removed the barrier of everybody's tolerant about um, the quality of the video, the, the quality of the sound content is king. So everybody kind of have an eye on it and say, don't worry, as long as the content is good, we're going to listen to it. And that's that's the beauty of, if you want, the beauty of the pandemic. <laughs> the, the one major thing I miss in the pandemic is golf clubs. 
because Toronto actually has a respectable size goth scene, and I haven't been to a goth club since January. And the city of the city of Toronto is saying that we probably won't have nightclubs for another year. Yeah, well, I've seen I've seen them in London around, so Camden is still is <laughs> <laughs> still full of full of uh, full of goth and full of uh, rock stuff. So it's it hasn't changed, and with the pandemic event eventually going lower and lower, we're gonna see them around. So hopefully, we're gonna have clubs again sometimes next year. <laughs> and the social aspect is, is is the part that I'm missing. So the especially on the conference, uh, the breakouts, the the event where you can socialize, it's difficult to socialize in front of a camera or to have that breakout event or the corridor con. <laughs> <laughs> or lobby con or call it whatever you want but I'm missing I'm missing massively to to do that and it was a chance for everybody to come together uh, to ask <laughs> to come together in one single place being a community extended but a small community but we almost reached the top of the hour so I'd like to leave well first of all Masi thank you for coming on the show and to the uh, listener to listen to the show uh, but before we close we have a tradition to leave a good and positive message to the industry or to people that are listening. So, Kim, can you give us the a, a good positive message on, on cyber? Yeah, um, computing is affecting more and more facets of our everyday lives. IoT is exploding. So even though the economy doesn't look very good right now, there is gonna, there's always going to be growing demand overall for cybersecurity jobs. So don't give up. Don't give up on your dream. I've always been very happy working in this industry and you'll make it too. Just don't give up. Fantastic. Thank you for the message and thanks everybody for listening in. This is your host Francesco. We had King Crawley on the show, amazing blogger, contributor and Friend. Thank you very much. Are we friends? Now we're friends. Thank you. We all know each other. (laughs) Stay safe. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.